This is episode number 525 with Karen Jean-Francois, analytics consultant at Cardlytics and host of the Women in Data podcast. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the positivity radiating and fabulously engaging Karen Jean-Francois. Karen works by day at Cardlytics, a publicly listed firm that digitally bridges banks and advertisers, where she is responsible for managing banking analytics, such as engagement and return on investment. Karen is also the producer and host of Women in Data, a podcast she created to strengthen listeners' confidence in their data careers. As a formal acknowledgement of her fabulous work for the community, Karen was recognized last year as one of the 20 in data and technology by the United Kingdom's Women in Data organization. She obtained both bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics and computing from the Université Paris-Sud in Paris. And during her time as a student, Karen was French national champion in the 400-meter hurdle. In today's episode, Karen fills us in on how to overcome imposter syndrome in the data science industry, why you might want to consider becoming a data science manager versus remaining a more specialized individual contributor, the data tools that she uses day to day, and the productivity and prioritization techniques that enable her to juggle her day job, her thriving podcast, and her world-class athletic pursuits. Today's episode will be of interest to you if you're keen to develop your capacity to make fulfilling career choices as well as to hurdle over the obstacles that come up in your professional life. All right, you ready for this? Let's do it. Karen, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited about being here. I've been following your podcast for a while now, and I was thinking, oh, maybe one day I could be on on the podcast. And (laughs) that that day came much faster than I thought. But I am joining from London, and uh, yeah, excited to be to be speaking with you today. Yeah, I I could tell from your strong London accent. <laughs> no, so it's you're originally from France, I guess. I mean, so I know that you studied in Paris, um, but it sounds like from our conversation just before the episode that you're not from Paris. No, so yeah, I am not from Paris and I'm trying very hard not to sound too French, but <laughs> this is me, and this is how you get me. <laughs> yes. no, great. Um, yeah, and so I am French, but from the Caribbean. So I don't know if you know, oh. there are yeah, there are some islands in the Caribbean that are French, but fully French, so French passport. And I come from an island called Guadeloupe, which is a few oh. islands north of Saint Lucia. Yeah, grew up there. Wow. Left when I was nineteen to study in Paris. So I did my third year university in Paris and my master's in Paris. And then I stayed in Europe. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful place to be able to go to on holidays. Definitely. Wow, lucky. Yeah. When I go home for holidays, I just go to cold Toronto. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was going to Guadeloupe and going to the beach to see my family. <laughs> that sounds much nicer. The only problem, I guess, is when I go home, I have so many people that I have to see that I don't get to enjoy the <laughs> island that much. Oh, no. You can't you can't meet them on the beach? Well, my family is not big on, on the beach, <laughs> but, which is weird. You know, you would think if you live on... My parents live two kilometers from the beach, so you can just walk to the beach, which I do right. in the morning when I'm back home. But getting my mom to the beach would be... I would need a, a trophy for that. <laughs> Right. Well, so speaking of trophies and walking, one thing that I noticed about your background, uh, which is a bit tangential to the episode, but I'm really interested in hearing about, (laughs) is your background as a hurdler. So you 
you were listed during your master's degree as being the best French performer on 400 meter hurdles and during your bachelor's as the third best French performer on the 100 meter hurdles. So tell us a bit about that. When have you been, <laughs> have you been running to the beach, that two kilometer run to the beach uh, since you were very young? How did you get into this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a great but embarrassing story. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, go ahead. We're, we're speaking now and it might not sound like that, but I, I am a complete introvert, sometimes a bit shy. And when I was a kid, I was scared of people. Um, and when I started secondary school, my my teachers told my parents that, okay, Karen, she has amazing grades, but she does not speak. And they could, when they were, <laughs> I was always sitting at the front, but every time they were asking me a question, I was just replaying like that. So no one could hear me talking, basically. And they said, you need to get her to socialize with other kids and do something that, that's going to help her feel more confident. And that's how I started athletics. So when I was 10, basically, my parents dumped me on the track and said, hey, Karen, <laughs> here you go. Go play with other people. Uh, and I loved it. So at the beginning, I was thinking, oh, maybe I would rather do basketball. I'm glad I didn't do basketball because if you throw a ball at me, I would just run in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's how I started track. I actually started doing high jump, but then there is not that much down that many coaches and for high jump on the island. I mean, tiny island, 400,000 people, not mm -hmm. that many people. Even on hurdles, most of the time I was running by myself. So it was two of us competing to a decent level. And then uh, there was it, it was hard to be able to get good times in, which is one of the reasons why I left and moved to Paris, actually. Huh. Um, yeah. Uh, that is very interesting. And then... We're going to talk about your productivity tips later in the episode, but how was it pursuing degrees in mathematics, including a master's degree in mathematics engineering with statistics and computer programming, while also training to be the best French performer <laughs> uh, at the 400 meter hurdle? So, yeah, has that always has that balance always felt um, kind of natural to you? This is. Uh... Natural, no. So it it does feel a bit natural when you're doing it because you know you don't have a choice. You you have mm -hmm. to do it, and because I started so early, I got used to planning around these things. So basically, if you know you have to be at school for that many hours, you have exams and all these things, but you also have to be on the track for a certain number of hours. You're going to organize your work around that. And as you said, we're going to talk about productivity later, but there are loads of studies that show that when you have something on the side, then you get more productive than if you don't have anything because you do have to focus on the task at hand. And I think that was what was happening um, when I was studying at university. I was at university all day long. And then mm. at six, I had to be on the track from six to eight thirty, and then mm. come back home. I was in Paris, living by myself, so I have to take care of dinner, take care of cleaning the flat, and mm. also study after. <laughs> although right. studying after you you've been running for two hours is not really very productive, but um, I guess that's what it was focusing on what I had to do at that time and making sure that I knew my priorities. Nice. All right. Yeah. So we'll get into that more. Um, you mentioned that you have been listening to Super Data Science for a while. Um, I know, for example, we were talking about before recording, we were talking about how you were listening to the episode where about a year ago now, uh, Kirill handed over the reins of the Super Data Science podcast that he started over to me uh, and how the kind of the tension that he built that he just <laughs> wouldn't get around to making me enough. And you were like, you were mentioning that you were listening to that while running. So I guess you get you get some time still today to go for a run and you listen to podcasts as you do that, um, which is actually what led to me kind of being aware of you because both of us spoke at the Data Science Go virtual conference, which was at the end of July, and you were on the Data Science Podcaster panel. So the Data Science Go people put together this graphic of some of the speakers. Uh, it included your face actually right next to mine. And I posted it on LinkedIn and said, look at these great speakers. 
And then you added me on uh, LinkedIn and you said something like, you know, it'd be great to, to meet each other over virtual coffee or something. And when I went and looked at your profile, which was <laughs> admittedly months later, I realized I didn't respond for months to that uh, message, but sometimes I'm overwhelmed by messages. Oh and yeah, so, I get that. <laughs> but I had a day where I was able to kind of go back and I saw that, I looked at your profile, I was like, wow, <laughs> I've got to get cut in on an episode. And so here we are. I'm so happy that um, that you are interested and, and that you're excited about being here. So your podcast is called Women in Data. And you've had some great guests on recently. Sheila Byfield, who is author of In With the Old and In With the New, which is a fun book. And it sounds like that episode um, is a really interesting one for people to listen to. You've also had people like Susanna Moan, who is the chief data officer at a big retailer in the UK called Curry's. So I think in general, your guests skew towards the UK, um, but they are great female role models for people in uh, data-related industries, data analysts, data scientists, data officers, um, regardless of where they live in the world. I think it's wonderful that you do this podcast and maybe uh, you'd like to tell us a little more about it, maybe how you got started with it, uh, why you did it, and yeah, the impact that you're trying to have. Yeah, sure. Happy to to share that. And and you're absolutely right. Because I am based in the UK, the majority of my network is in the UK, which is how uh, I get in touch with my, my guests. But you said it very beautifully. Um, these women are amazing. They are ins inspiring. And that's why I chose the format of a podcast because wherever you are in the world, you can listen to it. Doesn't matter the time. So if you're not on GMT, it's okay. You can listen later. And that's why I thought podcasting was the best option. How I started with the podcast. Uh, another embarrassing story. I feel like my <laughs> life is, is a, a line of embarrassing stories and then me trying to get out of them. Uh, it's, uh, I had a massive imposter syndrome uh, at some point in my career. Ah. And that comes from many, many things. Um, there are studies that show that you know, 70% of people have an imposter syndrome at least once in their life. I feel mm. like I've had it my whole life, so not just at least once. And working in data was uh, a massive trigger for me because I grew up in the Caribbean. We did not have a computer at home. And working in tech was just, okay, Karen, what are you doing here? And working in data analytics and data science means that it, well, it, we all know it. It's a male-dominated um, industry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I found myself when I joined Carlytics uh, being the only woman in the team. And while I thought this wasn't going to be a problem because why would it be? We're all humans. We're all data professionals. Mm -hmm. I found that I was struggling with that quite a lot. So I struggled to really find my space. I struggled to understand if I was really fitting in that team, but in the in the field as well, and being able to find people who looked a bit more like me, uh, understand uh, that differences where being different is actually a strength, it's not a weakness, um, was very important for me. And I found that through the Women in Data community, so through some amazing women I met there who helped me through mentoring, through some breakfast chats as well, telling me, Karen, you are not crazy. You are not useless. Don't worry, you're great. Just do what you do best. And I wanted to, to make sure that all these conversations I was having, uh, all these women I could tap into because I was brave enough to ask questions, um, I wanted them to be available to everybody because in data, we are facing different challenges, right? So we're all different. Everybody would have a different challenge. Um, careers are not that well defined in data analytics and data science. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it means, especially for people coming into the field, it can be a bit overwhelming sometimes understanding, you know, what can you do? How can you step up? Which direction can you take? So showing also different career journeys, which is what you're doing as well, is something that's very important for me. So I approached Women in Data in the UK about two years ago. 
And I told them, can we please do a podcast? Because you have some amazing women in the community. And I know mm -hmm. some great women who could really bring something to others. And that's that's how it started, really. They were crazy enough to say yes. I mean, what did <laughs> I know about podcasting? <laughs> uh, and yeah, we've been running the podcast for a year and a half now. Wonderful. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. I love that you're doing that and I can imagine the the need that you meet out there. I think that given how uh, historically and currently underrepresented um, women are in in data science, and hopefully that's something that will continue to change over the coming years and decades. But I can see how right now, um, you know, I haven't personally experienced it, but I can imagine how being in a scenario where people are just from different backgrounds yeah. uh, than you, that it's that it's tough to. Um, to feel confidence that that you fit in. Um, and in fact, it's not, you know, the fact that people are from a different background is the beauty of data science and data analytics because diversity is what makes a, a great team. And sure. making sure, but yeah, but making sure that you can actually, you don't feel out of place, basically. So I, I remember... Um, our CEO coming to the office one day to talk about to talk to the women community of Cardlytics. And she was saying, if you don't see anyone at the company that if you don't see yourself in the seat of anyone else at the company, then you're in the wrong place. And that properly sent me in a panic mode, you know, because I was looking around me and I was thinking, first of all, I don't I think differently. I do things differently. Uh, and I don't look like them. So Am I in the wrong company? Wow. It's almost five years I'm at Carlisic now. <laughs> and she said that <laughs> a while back. So um, I managed to go over that and understand that, okay, maybe there is no need to panic. Um, but yeah, so these, these are things that need to be addressed. So on the podcast, really what I'm trying to do is, as I said, showcase some female role models to inspire others, but also bring more transparency on careers in data. Nice. And so speaking of the imposter syndrome that you mentioned kind of on the beginning of describing uh, your your podcast and why you got started with it, um, I did a five minute Friday on that episode 502, which uh, goes into what imposter syndrome is, how common it is. As you mentioned, I didn't have that exact set of 70% of people experiencing it at some point in their lives, though that's unsurprising. Um, and so that episode, it also has practical tips for overcoming imposter syndrome. And now if I ever do that again, I'm going to have to add, start your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is, you know, starting your own podcast is such a great way of, of doing these things and, and building confidence. Obviously not everybody will want to start a podcast, but doing something on the side is always so beneficial. Yep. Well, obviously <laughs> I agree with you. Um, <laughs> Nice. So in your answer to my previous questions about your Women in Data podcast, you did mention your company, Cardlytics. So tell us about what Cardlytics is and uh, what you do there as an analytics consultant. Yeah, sure. So what I'm going to try to do is to give you some US examples because me being mm. based in the UK, I am full of UK examples that might well, we not have resonate lots of UK with UK listeners too. Okay, so <laughs> all right, uh, well we can do both. Um, so Cardlytics, what we're doing is we are acting as a platform, so it's kind of a bridge between advertisers and uh, banks. So it can be banks or open banking platforms as well. So we're working with um, Nectar in the UK, for example, as an open banking platform. 
And what we're doing is we're pushing cashback offers on bank digital channels. So mm. let's imagine in the US, if you bank with Bank of America or mm. in the UK with Lloyd's, um, mm. you would go on your mobile app or on your online banking and you will get, or if you go spend at Starbucks, we will b- give you 5% back um, on your purchase and that will go directly on your bank account. So uh-huh. that's what we do. And my role there, uh, although I've had, <laughs> I've run many hats in the, in the company, as I mentioned, I've been there almost five years now, but at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm responsible for everything that is bank analytics. Uh, and although my job title is analytics consultant, I see myself more as an analytics manager because yes. I manage all the relationship with the, well, not the relationship, but the analytics <laughs> relationship with the banks, uh, managing a small team, making sure that we meet all the needs of the clients. And that goes from advertising because although the banks are where we publish offers. We can also run offers with them for their own products. So advertising, helping them understand the value of the program. So if we launch a new product, what impact is it going to have on your customers? What return on investment will you have? How your customers engage with the program? Um, Do we have some customers that are more engaged than others? If some are exhibiting a behavior of customers that could potentially spend more or redeem more offers? How do we get there to them to the next step? And things like that. Also dealing with a lot of data issues sometimes. <laughs> that That's my role in a, in a nutshell. And on the side, I do quite a few things as well. I do like to, to get involved in the day-to-day of the company and uh, making it a great place to be. Because Carlytics in the UK, it's about... I think it's just maybe 80 of us now. Uh, Team has grown during lockdown uh, as the whole company. So it's still quite small in the UK. And it just feels like a a big family. Uh, Also not too big for me because my family is definitely bigger than that. So getting getting involved with everybody um, is great for me. Nice. Yeah, so that's very cool to get insight into what your role as the analytics consultant title or this kind of analytics management role uh, involves. And you got there uh, from being a data analyst. Uh, so a senior data analyst at Cardlytics for years and then moved into this position. And you had a series of data analyst roles before that, including at uh, big media companies like Havas. Um, and you worked uh, as a statistician for ALDF uh, in, in France, uh, previously as well. So how did your background as someone who studied mathematics, statistics, computer programming, um, as a bachelor's and master's student, um, help you transition to being a data analyst? And then, um, what was the journey like from being a data analyst to being the kind of analytics manager that you are now? Yeah. Um, I I want to say that, you know, so I did my master's in applied statistics and mathematics engineering, but that was not my aim. So I never thought I was going to be a data professional. As I said, small island in the Caribbean, no one knows about data. If you ask my mom even today what I do, she will mm-hmm. tell you, Karen, she works in finance, <laughs> uh, which is not the case, but I've decided to let it go now. <laughs> and um, so I... Basically, I was training to be a teacher because Mm. I wanted to be a math teacher. Math is something I love. My granddad was a math teacher and he was my role model growing up. And I just wanted Mm. to be like him. And Mm -hmm. I randomly stumbled across statistics, well, applied statistics, because I had statistics Mm -hmm. before, but not really applied to data and other things during my master's. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I want to do that now. And it's only during my master's that I started considering a career in data and just went with the flow. Um, In Paris, I was doing a lot of statistical modeling. um, So something that would be very close to what we call today machine learning. And then Mm -hmm. when I moved to London, it became, it was a bit different. So it was more applied to marketing and advertising and, and all these kind of things. So while in Paris, I was working with, um, do you pay with checks? 
With checks, uh, yeah. very rarely. Okay. <laughs> uh, no. yeah, it's, we have checks in the United States <laughs> and in Canada, uh, and I, yeah, so yeah, so I think people know what checks are. If that's what you're asking, I, I've um, never, ever, ever seen a check in the UK. Oh, I and... had. Uh, I mean, I guess I was. I was there a little bit. It looks like you started living in the UK in 2014 and so i stopped living there in 2012 oh. and at the i did have so you you mentioned lloyd's bank earlier so lloyd's tsb was my bank and i remember they sent me a checkbook at the beginning of my time <laughs> yeah. in the uk which was in 2007 so that was now seven years before you got there and um i don't know if i ever used them <laughs> but i knew i didn't know that i had them so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the UK had moved beyond checks completely. Now, I remember even then, I was impressed at how easy it was to make free transfers between bank accounts to other people, even if they were at a different bank, uh, which is um, something that in the US and Canada has only <laughs> happened very recently. Banking in the UK is amazing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Even paying for the train, you just go with your bank card and then tap and it lets you in. It's amazing. But mm. <laughs> your listeners are probably wondering why we're talking about checks. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that's because when I was living in France, it was like you couldn't do anything without a checkbook. So if you want to pay your rent, ah. if you want to go to the doctor, <laughs> you had to have a check. Wow. And people were paying quite a lot with checks. And what I was doing there is... So I was working for a company called Worldline. Um, and basically they're a payment provider like you will find with World, um, WorldPay and, and all these ones. And the department of the company I was working for was guaranteeing checks. So you would go to a retailer, say, oh, I would like to pay with a check. And then we would have a whole process behind saying, yes, this check is safe to be to be accepted by the company. And right. if the check was coming back and paid, we would give them the money back. And what I was doing there was I was building all the predictive models, trying to see, you know, the probability of a check to come back with no money. Right, uh, right. So that's what I was doing. And I moved to London and started, it, it felt like I had changed field completely. Um, that's something <laughs> again with you know working in data can mean so many different things right and you, I you show up on day one in london and you're like all right give me all the check data <laughs> i'm i'm gonna be in really good shape for analyzing all your checks <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i started with a small agency and i was doing a bit of marketing and company analytics there company analytics at Havas as well and then when I moved to Carlytics, I was still doing some company analytics, but what the beauty of Carlytics is that it links back to this first um, job I had in Paris where I was working with transactions. So yes, mm -hmm. in France, I was working with checks. Now I'm working with um, debit and credit cards um, transactions, but it's still transactions. And I just love looking at where people are spending their money. <laughs> it's wow. really, you do work being... in finance. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom's right. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, so that's me being a stalker and then wondering, okay, where are people spending? <laughs> um, don't worry, everything is pseudonymized, so I don't know who is spending, but we, we do see what, advertise, mm -hmm. what merchants, where, how much people are spending, how often they go, and all these things. Um, so what I found, what I started doing was, first of all, a bit of company analytics, but also helping merchants understand their market share, how it changes, if they are losing customers to competitors, and, and things like that. Um, how I moved to a management job, is because as I mentioned before, imposter syndrome, uh, I, I'm not as, although I have a background in mathematics and I did a lot of coding, I am not as mm -hmm. strong technically as people who would come on the market now, or as even people who are in my, in my team already. Um, I, I don't like spending hours and hours coding. So I love coding. I wouldn't be at 9 p.m. being, oh, my God, I need to code these algorithms. I, I would be at 9 p.m. being, oh, am I going to do a bit of yoga or going for a run, <laughs> you know? Um, so I was feeling like maybe do I have, I was at this crossroad where which a lot of us get to 
wait, do I go more technical or do I go towards leadership? And going technical for me sounded wrong because I do not get as excited as others with the technology, although I love it. It is not Mm -hmm. what keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went on the leadership side and I had to build all these skills that because before I was coding all the time and looking at the data. So being used to be more client facing, um, advising more on data questions, understanding what the question is really, because when I was working, often what was happening is, I'm saying when I was working, I'm still working, but when (laughs) when I was a senior analyst, what was happening is that people would come to me with a question and I would just answer the question with the data. So now what I had to learn to do is really get deep into the business problem people are trying to solve. So understanding, okay, you're asking that, but is that really what you need? And this is something I'm still working on. Uh, It takes a bit of practice because every question is different. Every business is different. Uh, But this is what I'm at at the moment. And obviously people management as well. Very cool. A great answer to my question. And so today, even if you're not using, you know, even even though you're managing now, there probably still are some some data or statistical tools or approaches that you're still using. Actually, definitely you are. I don't even need to assume that because <laughs> I know that even just to be explaining things uh, to clients that you're you're leveraging the results of data models and that kind of thing. So what kinds of yeah tools do you and your team use today? Yeah, and actually in the UK, we're, we're a small team, so I'm definitely hands-on and still digging into the data. Nice. Uh, tools I use on a daily basis, SQL, definitely. Uh, so we use Vertica and uh, tapping in the database with SQL. I code a bit with R, um, and I used to work with SAS quite a lot in the past, a bit less now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we also build some dashboard with um, Tableau, and yeah. we have someone in our team that that is quite good with self-serve tools with Shiny. I wouldn't know where to start with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. If if listeners are interested in um, the R Shiny uh, tool that allows you to build fully functioning websites with an R code backend, Birle van Leimput in episode 491 talked about that in a lot of detail. Um, but yeah, this is this is super cool. You're using a lot of the big, a lot of the big names in this industry. Um, so SQL for pulling uh, the data that you need out of structured databases, R for doing some analysis on these data, building some statistical models on those data, and then Tableau for visualizing the data. Yeah. And I've actually I've never used SAS, but that's kind of it would serve a similar function to R, right? You could use that. In, in yeah, R. so I, I would definitely. So I, when I started working, everybody was just, oh, if you can't code with SAS, then we don't want you, <laughs> which, which feels very uh, weird right now because no one yeah. can write it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, definitely. So SAS would be, I guess, in business, people were using SAS and at university because R was developed by researchers. So yeah. R was more prominent at universities. So when I graduated from my master's, we were doing R more than SAS. And when mm-hmm. I started working, it was SAS, but very similar functionalities. Um, they, you can Everything you can do with R, you can, well, not everything because <laughs> R is ever <laughs> developing, but I could do at the time the same things. Nice, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, R is open source, so it appeals to yeah. academics. Whereas SaaS is a commercial tool, um, and yeah, it 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 does seem to be that SaaS was, yeah, when you started your career, uh, 2011, 2012, coming out of your masters, it doesn't surprise me to hear that SaaS was relatively widespread then. But yeah, I don't hear that mentioned on the podcast too much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, anywhere. <laughs> yeah, R has filled filled. Uh, a big niche and and Python, of course, too. These kind of these open source languages have uh, really taken over where commercial products like SaaS and MATLAB used to be really big. Exactly. Um, cool. So obviously you are capable of doing a very large number of things in any given work week. Uh, 
uh, or any given <laughs> week. I suspect that some, sometimes the weekend is uh, your work week as well. Um, so you have managed while you were a student to be a top national level hurdler while also uh, completing a bachelor's and, the, and then a master's in a difficult technical discipline at a top university like Université Paris-Sud. So clearly back then you were capable of balancing a lot. Now you're balancing being a manager as well as doing hands-on work as an analytics consultant at a really cool company while simultaneously running your Women in Data podcast and still getting runs in uh, and some yoga in it sounds like. I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, and you don't need to get into this in the episode, <laughs> as to how fast you still are today. Um, I suspect that your little runs are still, you're still getting a lot of work done in those. Um, but so what I really want to know and what I suspect listeners would love to hear about is whether you have any productivity or prioritization or time-managed secrets to be able to, to uh, not only balance all of these different things that you focus on, but do them to such, um, to be able to execute them at such a high level. Yeah. Okay, so first I will answer the question of how fast I am today. Uh, I have, <laughs> yes. I have no clue. But uh, uh, a few years back, when was that? Maybe four years ago, three, four years ago, I actually managed to go to the national championships in France and make Whoa. it to the final, yeah. Uh, while, which, which was very surprising to me because I stopped competing in 2011. Uh, wow. So that was after the European Championships where I had a massive burnout. Um, and I went back to the track when I moved to London, but I was going once or twice a week. So not the 12 hours that I was doing before. Mm -hmm. And I guess because I was older, my muscles were developing better, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I ended up running yeah, faster than I used to. <laughs> you You might know this better than me, but my understanding, I read this years and years ago, so I might be butchering something here, but... The, the top women long distance runners, they're often in their 30s, 40s, or maybe even older, 50s, um, which is interesting. I think that doesn't happen with men as much. Um, but yeah, for some, somehow there's this, this difference. Yeah, so I'm not that close to long distance, if I'm Yeah, afraid. I know Although you're not a long distance I, I, runner, though. So, I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did drag me into running a 10K a couple of weeks back, so... <laughs> 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 I cannot believe I did that, but I did that very proud moment. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I think there is this thing around when you're a sprinter, your muscles, so the your muscles really develop around uh, between 24 and 30, early 30s. So late 20s, early 30s, and that's where you're at your peak in terms uh. of muscle capabilities. And then after you start getting injuries. Uh, <laughs> So um, I guess because I was older, I already had the technique. I mean, the technique, you, you don't forget For sure. it. You just have to sharpen it. Mm -hmm. I ended up running faster than, than I used to. Wow. And uh, these, my times are not going to be crazy for the US, uh, but for France, they were pretty great. And I did um, 13.58 on 100 hurdles. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't come anywhere close to that, even if there were no hurdles. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot run very fast without hurdles, though. So that, that's, a, <laughs> that's if you if you remove the hurdles, my brain is like, where do I go? And I don't understand. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, so you're right. I, I do. I cannot live my life without running. So although I don't go to the track as often, although I don't go over hurdles, right? I tried last time. I can't get to my first hurdles um, in the how I used to. So I would start running and then being like, you are too far. Can you come closer? Uh, <laughs> but uh, I do run regularly because this is what makes me feel good, you know, is this is something I've done all my life. I do not know how to function without running. Mm -hmm. I discovered lockdown, um, lockdown, <laughs> yoga during the lockdown, a bit before that, but really getting into it in the first lockdown. And I practice ashtanga yoga three times oh yeah i was now. gonna ask yeah 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 because cool. I, i'm quite an active person so it has to be hard and make me sweat otherwise i'm not happy <laughs> uh, it's, um, so you, 
I take the opposite with my yoga. So I do yin really? yoga almost every single day. Um, but I need that. So the yin yoga is, uh, it sounds like from your nod, you already know, Karen, but uh, for listeners' uh, sake. So yin yoga is long held poses that are uh, passive. So you could imagine like even you could, even right now, if you're standing and listening to the podcast, if you just uh, lean over to touch your toes, you kind of hang there for a minute or two minutes and you're just trying to relax. Um, so that's what I need now in my life because um, so typically in the mornings, it's um, I do CrossFit style workouts. So that's a mix of weightlifting and cardio. And that makes my muscles all so tight that in the evenings, I love yin yoga. It helps me get a good sleep. It helps me feel, it helps me recover. Um, but um, I come from an, an active yoga posture tradition. So I'm, I'm trained as a, a yoga instructor. Uh, oh, wow. Kind of vin, yeah, vinyasa style yoga. Oh, that's um, amazing. Which is similar to Ashtanga. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. So Ashtanga, um, does that have, does it kind of always have the same sequence of poses? Yes. Right. Um, and you just, you, you master that, you get it. I've, I've gone all the way to the half primary. Uh, I'm <laughs> struggling with the other half. It's quite long because I think a, a full primary series would last an hour and a half. Uh, right. So now I just go half primary, which is maybe a, an hour, an hour, 10 minutes. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a lot <laughs> of yoga. And yeah, it, it'll tickle your challenge, uh, that that challenge tick box you're looking for, for sure. Yeah, and actually, fun fact is now I'm trying to integrate a bit more of, of yin, so at least doing once a, a week because I I understand the the benefits of it. So when I started yoga, the first time I was exposed to yoga is when I moved to the UK and I was trying to make friends. How do you make friends? You, you, go, <laughs> you go to the gym. And I went to the gym. It was a yin class and I hated it. I was thinking, why am I just doing nothing <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, and now i'm really starting to get more into it because i've understood the benefits uh, it's not just the benefits for the body it's also benefits for for the mind and i as you said i'm a busy bee and i, I need to clear up the the clutter in my in my mind quite often so how i do all of that is as i mentioned before you know having something on the side means that it forces you to focus on what you have to do. And right. this is something I'm still working on because doing athletics and studying is different than working, doing podcasts and exercising. Because when you're studying, you know, this is what you're going to do today. You have to listen to the teachers. They can give you the exercises. You have some mm -hmm. content to go through and then you have the exams with the deadline. Work mm -hmm. is, a, is a bit different. Um, and there are a lot of things in, involved in the in the workday, so I had to change a bit the way I was doing things. And while before I was, I mean, I, I'm addicted to planning, but I changed the way I was planning. So now I tend to plan around my energy levels. So I know that if you ask me to do anything on a Monday morning, it's going to be bad. <laughs> because I will, have, I will have very low energy. So on Monday, I use Mondays for my planning because I know I love it. It energizes me. I use Monday to catch up with with um, my direct reports, uh, making sure that they know what's going on in the team uh, in the week, what kind of support they're going to need and when. So that gives me some energy for the rest of the, the week. So understanding you know what energizes you what drains you is very important when you are trying to do something on the side because if i'm low on energy and i'm trying to do something that's going to kill my energy first of all i'm going to make mistakes and making mistakes in data is very easy because you need a lot of focus mm -hmm. and then <laughs> the rest if i do that in the morning that's it for two days i can't work because i don't have any energy so that's how I do, how I do it. There is also this great book called um, "Eat That Frog," uh, eat which the is frog. Eat, yeah, eat, which, eat that frog. Eat that frog, <laughs> which is great with tips on how to plan. And so the idea is to really make um, take your biggest task in the morning and, and do mm -hmm. that. 
uh, I'm not, I mean, I don't do it all the time because sometimes in the morning, if I don't have the energy to take the big task, I will just push it to, to the afternoon. But I try mm -hmm. to do that as much as possible. Um, yeah, I, so, I completely understand that. So the idea <laughs> of eating the frog, uh, first, the analogy is quite vivid of this idea of, I guess, I eating know. a live frog whole. It's disgusting. And, <laughs> yeah. And how it's tricky, but if you get it done uh, at the beginning of your day, then the rest of the day seems like a breeze. And I realize that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Like people say that, uh, I read that so many places, but interestingly, I often almost go the other way with something, at least like my very first tasks in the morning. Um, I like some of them to be my most routine and kind of easy. So like sitting down on my computer first, uh, I know that like the first half hour, the first hour is going to be relatively straightforward. And then I'm kind of there sitting. I have like some of my gears turning in my head and then I'm like, okay. I look at my to-do list. So I organize my to-do list with the most important things first. And then, yeah, exactly like you say, if I if I see that first one there, I'm like, oh, I'm not ready for that. I <laughs> but can't enough things done. <laughs> yeah, but I'll get it done later. Um, and yeah, so I completely understand. That's those, those are great prioritization tips. And I love the recommendation of that particular book, Eat That Frog. Yeah, but I think also, you know, building strong habits is very important. Because if I don't go for my run in the morning and don't think I'm crazy running 10 kilometers every day, I just go in the morning, run 10 minutes, so just two kilometers, and and that sets me up for the day. If I don't do that... Wow, two I, kilometers. But it's not, it's really quick. So two kilometers, you go around the... Yeah, no, the, I the mean, it's, that is really quick. I did think you would be doing more like 10 kilometers a day. No, no, because uh, if I do 10 kilometers, first of all, I'm a sprinter. <laughs> right. 10 kilometers is my idea of a nightmare. And <laughs> <laughs> running two kilometers a day means that it gets my body moving and then yeah. I'm ready for the day. And then yeah, on yeah. weekends, I do longer runs. Cool. I love those productivity tips, Karen, and uh, the particular book recommendation of Eat That Frog is useful as well. So you have achieved a lot in your career already uh, and outside of your career already. What's the biggest challenge you've had in your career? Yeah, I, I would say that the biggest challenge, and it's a theme we've been touching quite a lot throughout this episode, is, you know, overcoming this imposter syndrome and right. finding my voice. Uh, because I, I thought... I used to think that I did not belong in a career in data so much that one day, so on top of yoga and running, I love baking. And one day I said, okay, maybe data is not for me. I, I want to be a, I want to be a patisserie chef. <laughs> so one day I walked into a, a bakery and I, I asked it's the so, chef. And I, that's so, that's a French culture thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to love the cakes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So I went to the bakery and I asked for the chef and I said, can I come work with you on Saturdays? See if I can, if this is a, a job I would like to do. So for, I think it was two or three months, I went every Saturday to the bakery and I was slicing cakes, glazing tarts, <laughs> making genoise. I got some really great tips from that. So you're laughing, but uh, wow. trust no, me. I, I, that's so great. I love that you dove so deep into it that's great <laughs> that's me i can't do anything halfway <laughs> um and yeah so i went to this is how far i went so i wanted to try a different job and then thankfully i said you know with the help of the women in data community but also um some people at carly six so i had the help from a vp at carly six who really helped me understand my strengths and you know turning this around I think it's it's a great achievement and it might not seem that way, but going from, I don't think I belong here to fully owning my career and saying, this is what I want to do. And this is how I'm going to do. So I changed my job because my job was not fit for me. So being a senior analyst was not what I wanted to do. I wanted right. to manage team. I wanted to develop people. Something I'm very keen on is really helping people getting to where they want to be. And this is also what I'm trying to do with the podcast and, and other things I'm doing on this side with mentoring. Um, so 
letting go of these all these obsession about sharpening but my technical skills which i'm right. still you know doing some training on i'm still trying to learn python and all, all these things but i was so focused on that before that i was not looking at where i would be stronger so i was looking at this thing is something where i need training on uh, i would focus on that and i was never playing by my strength so letting go of I guess the overwhelming technical training I was trying to get into to mm. move more towards leadership was for me uh, the biggest achievement I've had. Because if you're a data professional, if you're a technical, you're a data scientist, you're a data analyst, letting go of writing code constantly and doing things is very, very hard. Also, you know, that led from me starting the podcast and also doing more mentoring and I feel so much better in my career right now, and I feel like I'm I'm in a great place for to set for for my future and craft the career that I really want. That's wonderful, Kanan, and I I can empathize with that a transition from the you know the relentless focus on to, uh, technical expertise toward leadership. I went through something similar a few years ago, where I had this impossibly long list of technical skills that I wanted to have. And I was trying to chip away at all of those all the time. And while I could do that, it wasn't as natural a fit for me as embracing my capacity to be a manager or focus on commercial tasks. So I can understand that there's this, there's this tension because you kind of feel, especially as an early career, data professional that, oh, there's this huge realm of superpowers that I could have. And you see all these people around you with this huge tool shed of superpowers available to them. And you kind of, you feel this pressure, but that, you know, that isn't necessarily where everyone should be focused all the time. There's a lot of room in data careers for people to be managers and to help the people with all those technical superpowers <laughs> uh, make the most of those in a commercial setting by developing your management skills, your commercial awareness, your capacity to uh, interface with clients and investors and this kind of thing. So uh, I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you feel like Thank you, you found your place now. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that list you mentioned, I, I had the same in ticking boxes. And when you work in data or in technology, this list is always going to grow because things move so fast that you're always going to end up adding things to that list. And if you end up playing a, a keep up game, I guess, trying to catch up with all the latest technologies, all these new technical development that you have to have in your toolkit, you're never going to be able to to shine. And you mentioned the people who have these amazing superpowers and these great technical skills. Even them don't have all of them. So, of you know, making sure you, you need to know where to put your focus rather than trying to be everywhere is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine it makes it very easy to feel imposter syndrome if everywhere you look, you notice the superpowers that other people have that you don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's inevitable. There's no way anybody in a data analyst, data science career path, software engineering career path. <laughs> uh, you you don't know almost anything, like relative to the to the pool of what you could know, and that all of the other data scientists around you know. You know less than one percent, and yeah. that's okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a really great message there. So, another question that I have for you is is one that I rarely ask guests, but it's one of my absolute favorites and you highlighted it as one that interests you. So <laughs> I'm excited to ask you. Uh, to, so let me frame the question first. So we're at a point in history or we've been at a point in history for decades that we expect to continue for decades where we have ever cheaper data storage. It's just the, the cost of storing data halves every couple of years. And same kind of thing with compute. The cost per, uh, per unit of compute is having every something like 18 months. 
We have way more sensors collecting data than ever before. We have interconnectivity on a scale that is unbelievable and constantly becoming more and more interconnected. And we have data modeling innovations that we, that we share with each other in archive papers and GitHub and open source software. So this, all of these things together allow technological advances powered by data in particular to um, advance at an exponentially faster pace every year. So what excites you about the future given these um, underlying themes? All right. Uh, so, I mean, people might or might not agree with me, but this is my own opinion and, and I will say it. So it feels like we are on a never-ending sprint. So, you know, you were talking about long-distance runners um, and how they peak and all these things. So long-distance runners, they pace themselves. Sprinters, you, you can only sprint for that much, right? So we are on this never-ending sprint. I don't know if we are going to have cramps at some point or <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> but what what I feel like is things are developing so fast and is it giving us enough time to process what's going on, what's happening? And something that really excites me um, about the future is the day where we understand that all the development that we're doing today means nothing if our data is not right. So you can build the best machine learning model. If your data is biased, the output is going to be wrong. Uh, and we are going to be applying that to very important fields such as medicine, such as education, and loads of other things. So now we have self-driving cars and all these things. If the data is not right, mm. the the output is never going to be. And for me, the most exciting thing about the future is when we are going to actually say, hold on. Can we get the data right and, and then go in and do that? So I don't know how you feel about that, but th this is kind of my feeling. We, we've had so many stories about, obviously, at the moment, we haven't properly applied it to have a gigantic, disastrous impact. But right. if we keep going down that route, it might happen. And I really don't want that to happen. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Karen, on how important it is for uh, the data quality to be very high quality. So as a quick anecdote, I was recently able to hire somebody on my team who is tasked solely with ensuring our data quality is as high as possible. So this is a bit of an unglamorous position. I think a lot of people, when they get involved in data analytics, data science, they want to be working on the latest machine learning models, but uh, or you know the latest techniques, the latest tools. But if the data quality aren't very high quality, then user experience isn't good. Data models aren't going to be great. So I couldn't agree with you more. And a tip for listeners is that whether you're on the business side of data science or you're a technical expert, spend some time rolling up your sleeves and getting into the data and cleaning it up because um, it's going to improve your products. It's going to improve your models. And it's it's actually probably the bulk of the work. Um, especially with some modern kinds of uh, machine learning techniques like deep learning that can automatically extract features from our data. We don't even need to be spending our time as a data yeah. scientist coming up with features uh, in theory. So <laughs> really, we've got to get the data right. And that's where you should be spending your time. So great point. Thank you for And that. I will actually add to that, that, you know, because yeah. the, as we said before, the field is so broad that there is a space for everybody, right? So why... Because we're talking a bit, we're talking so much about data science and machine learning and all these new models and all these things. People get excited about it, but there there is another world out there. There are other um, career paths, and for what we know, well, or for what you know, you might like it even more than building models. Because I worked on building models myself in the past, and while it was exciting, I found something I like even more. So if you don't try something you you can't know and really playing by your strength is what even more important than how glamorous your your job sounds. For sure. Great point. All right. So one last big question for you, Karen, is 
what keeps you up at night? So you have let us know about you know things in the past that have been challenges that you've overcome, and as well, you know these data quality issues that are so important for the future. But is there anything that keeps you up at night professionally? Definitely. <laughs> and that touches a bit on, on what I just said about, you know, the carriers being so diverse in, in data. And what I found is, you know, carriers in data are, are not very, they're not set in stone, right? So everything moves, uh, they're not really defined, and there is a massive lack of transparency on the different carriers available in data analytics, data science, and not data engineering and everything data basically and when we if we take the example of when we are kids so when we are kids we play at being a teacher we play at being a cook an explorer we never go oh let's pretend we're data scientists <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's because our careers are not visible enough hopefully this is going to change because now everybody talks about data so i'm hoping you know my grandkids if i have any one day we talk, we dream about being a data professional. But at the moment, the reality is that this is not the case. No one knows about it. Um, and what really keeps me up at night is that even once you're exposed to the, to the field, you don't know what it means. Uh, so I did a master's in applied statistics and statistical modeling. And I had no clue what it meant to work as a data professional while mm. they were preparing us for that. And it's still the case today. When you finish studying, when you have, even if it's not at university, even if it's a course, you don't know what's expecting you in the workforce. And when you're working in the field, you don't know what else is out there. You just know what you're doing today. Um, and this is something I'm trying to address with the podcast. But something that really keeps me up at night is, you know, all these people who get into the field or want to transition into the field and they have no clue what their career could look like. So they just have this ideal in their mind. So you are talking about the list of skills. And I feel like so many people feel like that. There is this list of skills that you need to tick and it never ends. And it feels like you're never going to be a proper data professional because you can't tick all the boxes. This is wrong. Um, so I'm trying to do some work around, you know, breaking these limiting beliefs, uh, changing the vision we have of the field, the vision we have of what it means to be a data scientist. And I'm really hoping that one day I will be able to help people to find their value, find their niche and understand what career they want to go towards in data. And for me, that means today building your own career is not relying solely on your job description, is understanding your strength, it's understanding what you like to do and going for it. Don't be shy, just say what it is that you want to do in your role and, and get it because no manager is going to, well, unless you have an amazing manager, <laughs> no manager is going to tell you, oh, here is the perfect job for you because the perfect job for you is what you know it is. No one else will know what the perfect job for you is. So you have to build it yourself. And that's the, the beauty of being in data is that we're still defining these things. So you can actually craft your own job. Nice. That is a beautiful message, Karen. And to wrap things off, you've already told us about one book recommendation, Eat That Frog. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other book recommendations for us? I have one that I think is relevant to the what we spoke about. So I kept going on and on and on about the imposter syndrome. <laughs> uh, a book that's amazing about with the imposter syndrome, and I recommend everybody to read it or listen to it. I think maybe I wish I had listened to it more than read it because it's quite lengthy, mm. is Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. Uh, it is not a book for women. So, you know, very often when there is women in the title, people think this is for women. It is not right. for women. Everybody can get some tips from it. And what it addresses really is the imposter syndrome. So Valerie Young, who is the author, she spent her life researching imposter syndrome among students and people, professionals. And what she, she gives you some great tips. So first of all, the first part is looking into understanding your imposter syndrome, 
what kind of imposter you are because there are different types of imposter five according to them to her and then it goes into she goes into giving you tips to overcome your imposter syndrome and I feel this was uh, a very beneficial book for me so it was a great reading and I would recommend anyone who feels out of place uh, who feel like they, they are not where they should be or have an imposter syndrome <laughs> to just go and read it. Wonderful. That's a great tip. So you've had tons of great guidance for people in their careers, particularly their data careers, and just generally how to be a productive person. So how can listeners stay up to the latest on your work, your thoughts, and follow you? Obviously, we have the Women in Data podcast as one option. What else do you have for us? Yeah, so I will say where I'm most active will be on the on the podcast. But you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am not on any other social platform because I don't know how that I don't know how these things work. <laughs> I should get better at that. No, they're um, a distraction. <laughs> so you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Send me a message, and I, I will do my best to reply and help. I'm also going to start blogging. Uh, once I've managed to figure out how building a website works. <laughs> 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 so I'm on that. And what I would like my blog to be about is everything I, I just mentioned that keeps me out. Uh, it keeps me up at night, helping people be the best they can be in their career in data and be happy about their career. So that's what I'm going to blog about. And you will find me once I've launched the website on The Thriving Analyst. Nice. The thrivinganalyst.com. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Yeah. We'll be sure to include all of those links in the show notes. And I've really enjoyed having you on the show today. You're such a delight to speak to. Aww. And so hopefully we can have you on the show again sometime. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Wow, I absolutely loved filming this episode with Karen today. Her charming French accent, her warmth, her abundant positivity, and her remarkable humility given her extraordinary accomplishments. I feel so energized about the impact we can make as data scientists both for ourselves and the broader world. I hope that you're feeling it too. In today's episode, Karen filled us in on how analytics consultants work with clients to understand business needs, the SQL, R, SaaS, and Tableau tools that she uses on a daily basis, how having a passion on the side like hosting a podcast or being a national level athletics champion can sharpen your focus on your primary job. She talked about how awareness of what tasks energize you or drain you can help you optimize the productivity of your work week. And she talked about how awareness of your natural strengths and interests can guide you in your career journey, say, to decide whether to move into a leadership role or focus more on being a technical expert. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Karen's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at www.superdatascience.com 525. That's www.superdatascience.com 525. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. All right, thanks to Ivana, Mario, Jaime, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another incredible episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.